Hello and welcome to Facing Race. I'm your host, Leila Schultz-Ames. On today's episode, we're going to talk about authors of color and the importance of representation in literature. Stay tuned. Okay, so I chose this topic because as many of my listeners know, I love to write. And I've been writing for as long as I can remember because it's always been a uh, passion for me. It's just, it's something I love to do. And when I published my first book, my, my book of poetry about September 11th, I never really thought a lot about other people reading what I write. And I guess the same can be said for my memoir when I, I published that a few years ago. I, I don't know because I don't really write for other people, but... That being said, I think obviously as a writer, a lot of people, our, our goal is to get our work published and, and to get the information out there. And and honestly, as, as someone that's currently in the middle of three or four different pieces that I'm writing right now, publishing and getting published is, is half the battle. And historically speaking, a lot of it depends on the market and what people want to read. And and it's true that nowadays we see people of color, uh, their books in bookstores and, and online and audiobooks and all that, and and a lot of their works are, are highlighted. But obviously that wasn't always the case, right? And I thought it would be interesting to dedicate an episode to talking about writers of color. And I'm also really excited to have a special guest, J.P. Miller, who I'm going to talk with later on in the show, who is an African-American author, and she writes uh, children's books and, and literature about the, the African diaspora. So I guess one thing I also wanted to touch on before I start looking at modern writers of color is to talk a little bit about post-colonial literature. And it's sort of like, okay, well, what is that? What does that really mean? Well, I mean, since the 1980s, there's been a lot of novelists and poets that have been tagged as post-colonial writers. But, I mean, a lot of these things are terms, right, that we sort of throw around. So I guess you could see in the broadest terms, this category sort of includes works that have a relationship to forces of imperialism and colonial expansion. So in short, I guess you could say post-colonial literature is that which has kind of arisen primarily since the end of World War II, right, from regions of the world undergoing decolonization. And works from such regions in the 20th and 21st centuries, like the Indian subcontinent or Nigeria, South Africa, different parts of the Caribbean, might be described as post-colonial. But I also sort of started wondering, okay, what are some ex- specific examples of this, right? And in doing this podcast and I, throughout the, the year, the two years that I've done this podcast, I always get really interested and I sort of fall down these, these rabbit holes and, and all of that. So in doing research for this episode, I started looking into different books and that would, would kind of fall under post-colonial so in 1961, for example, there was France Fanon wrote a book called The, the Wretched of the Earth, and it was published in, in French, and it comes out of the Algerian struggle for independence from France, and it talks about the possibilities for anti-colonial violence in the region and, and elsewhere. And the author was an uh, intellectual who was, who was a member, actually, of the Algerian National Liberation Front. And his writings have inspired numerous people across the globe in struggles for independence, uh, struggles for freedom from oppression, and racially motivated violence. So that's a, a, 
something that's highlighted or at least should be highlighted right and and then in the 70s you had um edward taid who wrote orientalism which was basically a text examining the relationship between those in the west and the kind of quote-unquote other in the east and that is sort of a staple i think in a lot of post-colonial courses that people take and it sort of helped expand the field, I guess, over the last few decades. Um, Said was a was actually a Palestinian-American scholar who taught at Columbia University for a lot of his academic career. So there's a lot of, uh, within that field of post-colonial studies, uh, there's a lot of different things there, particularly in the late 70s and early 80s, and, and numerous fiction writers, of course, began publishing works uh, right after World War II. Um, one of the most... I guess significant post-colonial novels would be Things Fall Apart right, by Chunia Agape. And that's a novel from 1958. And that really, I think a lot of, in a lot of courses, that sort of pops up right on, on the syllabus. And uh, again, published in the late 1950s, it was sort of the book was written at the end of the British colonial period in Nigeria. And it sort of uh, depicted uh, an earlier... But it, it sort of looks at this earlier moment, right, in Nigerian history, and it's definitely a really good book. You know, it's, I won't give too much away, but it tells the story of um, Okongwo, who was an Igbo village leader in the late 19th century, uh, he, who basically witnesses the demise of his culture, right, at the hands of colonialism, and uh, Nigeria... As a side note, it remained a British colony until 1960. So there's a lot, there's a lot there. Uh, but again, this is kind of just a general broad sort of explanation and kind of just talking about a couple of different books. And, and then also sort of looking at the U.S. and America um, ever since the beginning of this country. You know, we've had, of course, people of color as storytellers, but it's not always really focused on in, in literature class or history class or, or what have you. I mean, Native Americans, for example, they were storytellers. Obviously, a lot of it was oral history and myths, but they were people that, that told stories. Uh, black people, for example, Phyllis Wheatley, uh, although she was an enslaved person, uh, Phyllis Wheatley Peters, as she was later uh, known as, was arguably one of the best-known poets in pre-19th century America. I mean, she was educated, she was enslaved, uh, but she was educated in the household of a really prominent uh, Boston commercialist, John Wheatley. And uh, she had her poems published and they were basically this illustrious testimony, if you will, that abolitionists were sort of saying, look, you know, black people can be taught, they can be educated, look, they are able to be artistic and, and intellectual. And her name was really a household word among a lot of those uh, early colonists. And she really played a big part in that sort of fledgling anti-slavery movement of, of the time. So uh, Phyllis Wheatley, she was seized from Senegal, uh, in West Africa, and when she was about seven years old, and she was transported to the Boston docks with a shipment of what they called refugee slaves, uh, who, because of basically their age or just their physical ability wasn't great, they were unsuited for this rigorous labor in the West Indies and Southern colonies where most of the slaves would go. So if that was the case, then they would take them up north. And uh, the Wheatleys, including um, their son Nathaniel and, and daughter Mary, uh, they basically noticed from a young age that she was really interested in in learning. 
And so they taught her to read and write, which was not common for slaves. And she was immersed in the Bible and astronomy, geography, history, literature, etc. And by the time she was 18, she gathered a collection of 28 or so poems and she was basically looking to to get them published and she was able to get some published but i mean at this time it was 1772 so obviously a lot of colonists were not really interested in supporting literature by an african she actually ended up turning to london for help publishing and so a lot of her her poems and letters were that are still read today they were published with that help from from a london publisher and uh that but all this being said i mean even though she was extremely famous a lot of times in school we don't talk about a lot of these important works by people of color from any century or any decade and we kind of i don't know it's it's obvious i think whether you're in just a public school private school really any any system of education that a lot of times the books that are taught or or the literature that we are taught are kind of just the same old books by old dead white men and it's not to say that these books aren't really interesting i mean you know i'm not saying that the great gatsby is not important or the sun also rises isn't something that should be included in in a literature course but all of these so-called all-american writers or books or, or what have you a lot of times they only offer one perspective and one voice and by the way i mean when when you think of this i don't know all-american person all-american writer author what usually comes to mind because for me, when I, I feel like we use that term, it's usually probably that the image pops up as this physically healthy, maybe blonde, probably definitely white, often American. And it's not necessarily, this image isn't neutral. I mean, by associating the American identity with whiteness, right? We sort of allow whiteness to dictate our definition of, of normal, like us versus them. And I think that sort of finds its way into our literature and it finds its way into what we consume, you know, our media and what we read or see or watch and all of that. And I think that can be dangerous to people who are maybe Americans, but they don't fit into that kind of box of what an all-American or American author looks like. And I was reading an interview with uh, a, a man named Mitchell S. Jackson. He is an author of Survival Math, Notes on an All-American Family. And in the interview, he said, quote, if you don't fit into the dominant group, you often get hyphenated. Think about it. Asian American, Hispanic American, African American. And those hyphenates seem a part of the great project of othering, and end quote. And I think that he's, he's on to something and not to get too off topic, but in kind of conjunction with this hyphenated identity, this all-American kind of becomes a, a tool, right, to dictate the narrative. And it kind of sanitizes the realities, I think, of a lot of minority communities and sort of fictionalizes what it means to be American. And I'm speaking now specifically about Americans, because obviously I am American. And I think a lot of for us as Americans, when we turn to books or we turn to, oh, this is a good piece of writing or this is inspirational, it's because it encompasses what we consider to be the American dream, American life, right? This idea of equality, liberty, independence, American dream, like 
you know, we love to think that these ideas are for anybody. And the reality is a lot of these ideas don't exist for all people. And so, again, we kind of use this idea of like all American, but it's like, what does that really mean exactly? Who gets to use the term American? Because if everything else gets hyphenated, then does that mean American is only for people that are white because they don't have to hyphenate. So what does that really mean? And and how does that really fit into books? Well, I think a lot of books are really about, well, it's a lot of things. I think people read because they want to learn, they want to escape, they want to read about or, or hear stories that are different from their own. And I think that's why it's really important for us to have a diversity in in literature and I think it's important for us to really learn from the experiences of others. So I did want to talk a little bit about some books that were written by by authors of color, important authors of color, and I think that they are books that everybody should should check out. So one is The Book of Unknown Americans by Cristina Enriquez. And it's basically a novel that follows the interconnected stories of the Riviera and Toro families. And they struggle to really find themselves um, in a new country. And I think that a lot of these stories are, are stories that people can can kind of relate to um, and, and things that people could kind of understand. Um, speaking of immigrants, one story I think too that is also good, well, it's sort of a collection of essays and it, it looks at, it's a reflection of about 26 immigrants and the children of immigrants. Um, and it's it's called Mean by Miriam Gerba. And uh, again, it's, it's talking about like their experiences in, in, in the U.S. and um, kind of how yeah, just how how they're able to to live, and and then with Native Americans, obviously Native Americans were the first um, first Americans. Uh, there's a, a book called There There by Tommy Orange, and it talks about um, Native Americans. It looks at um, twelve people who attend this powwow, and I think sometimes when we when we talk about Native American authors or whatever, people think, oh, Sherman Alexie. And his books are really, really good. But um, there's also other really great books out there as well by Native American authors. And uh, I, I think, you know, why not read as many as possible? And then another book I was going to mention is uh, the, Blue, the Beautiful Things That Heaven Bears by Dina Mangustu. And it follows the journey of um, a man who flees the Ethiopian Revolution and ends up actually living in, in Washington, D.C. And, and working or trying to run a convenience store. But that's, that being said, there's a lot of different uh, books out there and um, there's a lot of just good, good literature and, and good stories to find. Okay, I'm really excited to introduce our special guest for today. Her name is JP Miller, and she is an award-winning author who has been published since 2013. She grew up in Asheville, North Carolina, and she says that her weekdays were filled with school and sports, and that as the daughter of a Baptist minister, her weekends were spent in church. And in between, she loved to read and write. 
And as a student in the 1960s and 70s, she had an unrelenting thirst for books about African-American people and culture. So because a lot of times they weren't available after she retired uh, from the U.S. Forest Service in 2015, JP dedicated her life to writing stories of the African diaspora in children's literature. And she says she enjoys writing stories that young people want to read and that parents and educators yearn for while taking a really active role in tearing down a lot of cultural barriers. I should also mention too that JP is a recipient of the 2016 Best Short Stories and Anthology Award, an African American Literature Award, and in 2021, Black Authors Matter Award. Uh, so she has a lot of experience, a lot of great stories to share, and really excited to have JP Miller here on this podcast today. Thank you again, JP, for, for coming on the podcast and, and talking about your your work and about your writings. And I'd love to just start off by asking you a little bit about yourself and how you ended up getting into writing. Well, thank you so much for uh, having me on your podcast. Um, I actually started writing um, a little bit I was in the military and uh, went to Desert Storm, so oh, wow. I did a lot of writing there, um, poems and different mm-hmm. things, just sort of get things off of my chest, I guess, what yeah. I was thinking, uh, but never really thought of anything uh, formal until, uh, it was like the mid-2000s, and uh, Essence Magazine is a uh, magazine in the States uh, for women, um, and we uh, there was a contest there. So I had one of my coworkers uh, that loved to write also. I said, hey, let's enter this contest. And I began to write and she didn't. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you, you uh, entered so it. To say, I, I never uh, entered the contest. And actually, thank God I didn't because the piece that I wrote was that was probably laughable to the to the committee that would have been judging it. But uh, it was probably uh, the thing that got me started. Um, thinking about writing. And then a little later, um, I moved to Georgia in 2003 um, near Atlanta, and I um, actually had what I call an angel visit, um, and it was centered around my writing. So that's when I knew it was my purpose to write, and I began studying the craft and and writing from there. And I started off in Mm -hmm. self-publishing. and it was early chapter books that I self-published initially. And um, then I just took my time, backed up, kind of studied the industry a little bit and uh, saw what was really big. And so picture books, children's picture books were um, uh, popular. So I just began to focus and hone in on that skill. And that's, that's great. kind of, you know, the short version yeah. of how <laughs> I am now. That's that's great. And I think it's it's always interesting for me because I, I do a lot of writing myself and I also started out doing a lot of poetry. That was sort of my my calling. And then I've I've done different short stories and uh, fiction and nonfiction and all of that. So I always love to hear how people, you know, kind of get into the process and what their their initial entry into into the field is. So that's that's really exciting. And 
And I think too, it's it can be challenging sometimes, you know, kind of just getting getting started and 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 jumping in there. So, do you have any advice for for people that want to get into writing, especially you know, writers of of color? You know what? The best advice I could give is to um, really get in there and study the craft first. Mm-hmm. Or you know, you I mean, of course, write you a draft because. Um, the best thing you can do when you have a story in your mind is to put it in writing. Absolutely. But definitely study the craft before you um, start publishing. And I think that's, I think that's part of the reason why self-publishing has um, such a bad reputation with people uh, or, or in the industry is because people and authors, uh, aspiring authors, uh, don't really take the time to study the craft. They think that it's just like, you know, maybe going to school and getting an A in language arts or something like that. But it's, it's really a lot to it. I, I, I often say that uh, if people really knew how much it took to write a good book, they would, you know, I don't know, <laughs> they probably would, wouldn't, wouldn't like it. You know, I mean, for, exactly. for an author, especially a picture book, you know, for 600 words, there is a lot that goes into uh, making those 600 words meaningful and something that people would want to pick up all the time. It's, it's really study the craft. That's all I can say. Study the craft. Yeah. Maybe find a mentor to, uh, to you know, to help you or di- direct you, not someone for you to lean on. Uh, but to but help you. Help. Guys are correct. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think, and I think that's true. I I haven't personally written picture books, but right now I'm I'm in the process of working on a collection of short stories that I've actually been working on for for a couple of years. And you know, some people say, "Oh, well, short stories. It can't be that hard. It's a it, the story can't be that long." You know, but it, it it takes a lot of time, and there's a lot that really goes into the the process. So I definitely, definitely agree with that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, even to, even to, especially um, when you're writing for uh, youth, keeping it at a certain um, age or reading level, you know, Mm -hmm. it's like certain vocabulary words. Oh, that might be too big for you. Mm -hmm. Too large of a vocabulary word for a child. If you say you're writing one through four, and I guess that's the other thing is um, you have to really define your audience and know uh, what it is. I, I, um, I like to get what, you call, what we call in the industry mentor text. And so um, if I'm interested in writing a story about Louis Armstrong, then I may go in and find other stories that are similar to that so I can see how that author, uh, you know, wrote it. Not to say that I'm going to write it like them, sure. but to get uh, an idea. So uh, it's so it's so much uh, vocabulary. Every word counts. You know, so if it's not moving the story, then you take that word out, you know. <laughs> that's a good point. I think that's a good good advice for, for people to think about. And you mentioned, of course, you, you write children's books and, and, and picture books. And a lot of it is about the African diaspora and, and about uh, people of color. So why do you think it's so important to tackle that topic? I mean, why, why do you think Black stories really matter? Mm-hmm. Um, well, first of all, I probably tell my age when I when I say this, but uh, when I grew up in the '60s and '70s in the you know in the South, I'm originally from Asheville, North Carolina, and uh, growing up then, um, there were very few library books on the shelf mm-hmm. that had 
main characters or characters that look like me or mm -hmm. events or, or, or communities that look like the one that I was raised in. So I just want to make sure that um, that the children growing up today will have that, you know. And I I worked youth programs uh, for like 16 years, and I noticed it's the same people, you know, uh, being discussed. And most of the time during African American History Month here in, uh, you know, in the, in the states um, in February. So it's usually you know Harriet Tubman, Dr. Right. Martin Luther King, and so I was like. Ah. <laughs> I love those people, but we have so many more people that are doing that are doing and have done some wonderful things uh, in history. So that's kind of what was my driving force in writing and writing about the African diaspora, African American history and culture. Um, that's that's what I'm all about is making sure that young people see more than um, what is given to us generally. Um, you know, that one month. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think that's so important to start at a young age because I teach high school students and sometimes it can be a struggle, particularly because I teach history and I'm, of course, really passionate about social justice. And uh, this past couple couple of weeks, I've been teaching about the civil rights movement, and I get a lot of pushback from my students as sort of, well, why do we have to learn about this? Why is this important? Why do we need to, to talk about something that's happened a million years ago, in, in their opinion? And I think that by the time they get to high school, a lot of times it's sort of, you know, it's one, like you said, February, it's like, okay, Black History Month, you know, you learn kind of about the same people. And, and that's really it. And a lot of times in textbooks or in libraries or whatever, that's really all you don't see a lot. And so I love this idea of reaching out to young, the young generation, you know, and, and starting with young kids and picture books. And, and I think that's, that's a really great, great idea and, and great focus. Correct. So Correct. What do you hope that people... I'm not sure if you're aware. I do. I have a, a series. Um, it's called Black Black Stories Matter. That's great. And uh, it was it was actually a, a work for hire project that I did for Hachette UK. And there's four books. Uh, there's uh, at, uh, sports, uh, brave uh, activism, science, and I can't remember the other one. But uh, anyway, that. I, I found stories and so and they also recommended some people but it's biographies mm -hmm. so each book has uh, I think like five or six main biographies and then there's maybe five or six uh, mini biographies within each book and it's people from African diaspora all around the world Canada uh, it's it's Jamaica it's you know from all around the world and the thing that I found interesting in writing that series is um, that, you know, sometimes in America, we become so compartmentalized and, and we think that we're the only ones as African-Americans that has gone through a certain thing. Right. But I learned when when I was uh, writing that series and researching that series is that we're all connected, um, you know, everyone of African diaspora from around the world. We were doing similar things at similar times, um, just like the the bus boycott, the Montgomery bus boycott uh, was going on in the '60s. There was also a boycott um, in Great Britain, you know. And I didn't even realize wow. that, you know. I knew we had Black History Month, but there's just about every every country has a Black History Month. Uh, Great Britain they celebrate uh, 
uh, Black History Month in October. Well, I did and not so know that. It's really, you know, amazing to me. We we always think that uh, when slaves escaped in America, that they went to Canada. Right. And they were, you know, they were free then. Right. But they weren't necessarily free. There's there's a organization that's very similar to the NAACP there, you know. So it's like, wow, all of these things, you know, and most of us don't even know that, you know. I think uh, but I found that really great. interesting and that and that's why it's it, it's very important that black stories um, do get to our young people so that they can see this and not wait until they're in their 60s and 70s <laughs> to learn that kind of stuff. <laughs> Absolutely. And so it sounds like that's that's sort of the message, right? That is that what you're hoping people take away from a lot of these books is sort of just educating themselves and in, in learning about everything that's happened within the past hundreds of years. Yeah, I do. I do. I'm, you know, especially um, here in America, there was uh, the the Make America Great Again <laughs> campaign, you know, for a long time. And I'm like, right. you know, Make America Great Again, you know. When was it great to begin great. with? <laughs> and, and a lot of that has come from uh, contributions that African-Americans that have, have made that hasn't been necessarily put out there, you know? Mm-hmm. So um, that, was the main, that was the main thing that I wanted. I guess I could say my, my, my main purpose is to uh, allow children to see the wonderful things that African-Americans have done uh, in the history and the contributions that they have made to make this nation and this world the great place that it is i love that i think that's really really important i know for myself growing up where i did in maine there was not a lot of diversity so i really didn't see a lot of people that looked like myself and i think a lot of things really matter when it comes to representation it comes to books and media and tv and and movies and all of that and I think a lot of times people just don't, black people or people of color in general, they just don't really see themselves represented that well um, in the media. So do you think that the media does play a really big part in terms of cultural bias and, and sort of people kind of making assumptions, I guess you could say, about whether it's black people or Latinos or, or Asians or, or what have you? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, you know, it it, probably sounds bad on my part, but I stopped even watching the news uh, maybe three or four years ago, maybe even longer than that. (laughs) I stopped watching the news is because um, it was like every time they showed African-Americans on the news, it was, you know, (laughs) it was a, a, a negative way. And I said, I just kept telling myself, nobody can convince me that 10% of the population makes up 90% of the news. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I said, how, how does that happen? You know, but it's, it's all because of the message that uh, media uh, wants to, you know, to put out there. Um, I was watching a a commercial it's a commercial really right now that just gets on my nerves <laughs> it, and i won't i won't say the brand but um anyway it's for uh, i'll say this, it's for medication for for aids and so they show this they, they show this african-american couple walking their dog through the neighborhood and they have this house with grass that's high probably should have been cut five times you know 
And I'm like, why did they choose that? Right. You know? Right. Why exactly. did they choose that? Because that's the image they want people to think of for African-American communities. You know, our yards are well manicured. We have flowers and we have pergolas and, you know. Normal, <laughs> just normal la- lawns, you know. Exactly. So why would, why would you do that, you know? Um, so the media does play a, a huge part in um, not only the way we see ourselves, but the way other races um, see us. And I think that's that's probably the, the, the bigger message that they want to get out there is to the other races, not, right. you know, so much to to us. They, they want us to stay in this one little area in terms of how people view us. And so, yeah, it, it plays a huge part. Uh, in how we see ourselves and how other people see us. I think so too. And I think it's, it's really hard because I, I think that in both, right, like you said, how we see ourselves, you know, that, that has an effect. And then other people, they just see these, these images and they think, oh, okay, well, that's, that's how it is. And that must be how, how black people are. And, and obviously that's, that's not the truth. And, and I think it's also hard right now in the States too, because even though I, I, I live over here. It's like I still have a lot of, of course, friends and family in the States. And, and I have a lot of friends that are also teachers and, and, and active in, in social justice. And so I know there's been a lot of talk of banning books and banning materials and not talking about race or religion or anything in, in, in schools or just in general. And, and I think that obviously, you know, it's hard. It cuts the dialogue. So I guess my question to you is how... How are we able to get through to people who just, they don't want to hear anything. They don't want to read any books that have to do with race or any controversial issue. How how are we able to, I don't know, get through to them? You know, I, I, I look at that as uh, a drowning man's last attempt to keep <laughs> our, um, our history um, hidden. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they, they, I think they want, um, um, again, I think they want African-Americans, they want us to see ourselves in one way, and they want the majority uh, race to see um, people of color in one way. Um, so to me, um, in the last few years, we have had, you know, a lot of African-Americans, uh, especially in literature, that have been you know, standing up and saying, hey, let us tell our own stories our way. Because, you know, even, you know, prior to there were stories that were coming out, and I wish I could show the statistics of who was actually writing the stories about, you know, people of color, but uh, they weren't written by us. And of right. course, exactly. they couldn't, they couldn't um, necessarily capture the whole experience, but they were telling the experience the way that they wanted it to be told. So now you have a lot of African-Americans that are telling the stories, um, the way it really happened, the way we see it from our viewpoint. Um, and so they don't want those stories out. They, they still want us to, to be, um, I guess, oppressed. Yes, I think that's <laughs> a good way of putting term. it. Yeah. Exactly. And so I think that's why um, this whole uh, critical race theory has come up now is because um, the stories are coming out. You know, we're, we're telling, you know, uh, all, of all of these great inventions that African-Americans are responsible for, of all the good things that, you know, people of color have done. 
to make the world and the nation the place, the, the great place that it is. And they don't want that because they don't want us to get that credit, you know. Absolutely. Um, but, but I just say, hey, we keep will. writing the stories, <laughs> keep pushing it out there, keep telling the, the, the students the real history, you know, <laughs> in, in, in uh, history classes. Uh, we appreciate what you're doing. Thank you. But that's that's the only thing that we can um, that we can do as uh, creatives and educators is to continue to to get that out. I I couldn't agree more, and I think what you're doing with with the the books is great. I think it's really really important. So uh, I I really hope that everybody has a chance to to read what you're you're writing and. And what's what's next for you? What are you going to be doing in terms of uh, upcoming upcoming books? Well, you know, the majority of my uh, well, really, all of my uh, writing so far has been what we call work for hire for the educational department mm-hmm. and uh, our educational industry. Um, so basically, what has happened is uh, Publishers have asked me to write certain things. They pay me a certain amount. I write the stories, and they've gone out there. Leaders Like Us um, is one of the series. It's doing really well. Black Stories Matter is another one. And then I've also done um, Careers in the U.S. Military. All of that is work for hire. But this last November, I was able to get an agent. So I'm Yay! excited about Congratulations. that. Congratulations. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So around February, she sent some of my stories um, out to publishers. Uh, she subbed them to publishers. And so uh, we're like, we're looking at right now um, that, you know, there is one that may be, may sell soon. Uh, can't really talk about it right now, sure. but I'm excited for it. It is definitely a story that would have um, probably international appeal, I think. Wow. So I'm excited about that and where uh, God is going to take that story and, you know, and the others. So she's got quite a few. We've already decided on the next story that she's going to sub. And so when I say sub out, that means that uh, it will be traditional uh, publishing mm-hmm. uh, with one of the publishers and, of course, uh, you know, getting the advance and the royalties and all that Fantastic. kind of stuff. So I'm excited about Fantastic. that. Yeah. That's great. That's great. Well, thank you for sharing all the information. And we will definitely have to stay tuned to see about your, your next project when that, that comes out. So thanks for all the, the information. And, and we're excited to to keep learning and, and reading. Oh, thank you. Keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. So make sure to check out JP Miller's books and stay tuned for our upcoming uh, projects. And thank you, as always, to my listeners for tuning in. I would like to end this episode with a quote from the late, great Maya Angelou. As she said, quote, if you don't like something, change it. And if you can't change it, change your attitude, end quote. Really good advice. Thank you again and see you all next time.